Well, welcome to those of you who are joining us online, and a special welcome to those of you who are here on site with us. It is great to have you back after a short couple of weeks off. I can't tell you how much better it is to stand up here having somebody to look at, having some people to talk to, hearing people laugh hilariously at my jokes. Hey, here you go. Thank you. Thank you. They tell you to pause and wait for the laughter. Eventually somebody will laugh out of awkwardness at times. So that works too. But also uh, to hear you with your, with your, your amens, right? Because we're going to say it's good to be back and we're all going to say amen. And you can type that online as well if you wish. Type amen. It's good that we can be gathered together today and to learn and to worship. We're continuing our series on the power of prayer. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Uh, I hope that it's been encouraging to you, that it's also been equipping for you. And I'm curious, uh, you know, how, have you accepted our invitation to 30 days of prayer that's made possible through our prayer primers? I, I know many of you have. Who, anybody here participated in that e- even a couple of times? Look at that. fan. Fantastic. What I can tell you is that we have had over 75 people participate in this so far in the first week. If you are not amongst those 75, there is still time. Just jump right in. There's no need to go back to day one. Jump in today at day seven. Jump in tomorrow at day eight. Now, if you've been hesitant or if you think, well, this whole you know, month of prayer or these prayer primers, that's, that's just not for me. Well, I hope that by the end of today, at the end of my message, you have a new perspective on that. Because today as we talk about the power of prayer, I want to talk to you about the power of perspective. Now, the word perspective, it comes from a Latin word that means to look through. And and that's how we get the word perspective, and that's what it means. It's like this this lens through which we view the world and and how we get a perspective on events in our lives. It's lenses we look through on how we view other people. And based upon these lenses that we look through that form our perspective, they have this incredible power to change the way we see things, in particular the way that we see the world. I came across a, an interesting article this week about a guy named Don McPherson, who is a material scientist engineer, his doctorate in that, and, and, and what he would do is he would create glasses for different situations, and he came across a group of people, doctors in particular, who were doing laser surgery, and they needed glasses to protect their eyes. And so he developed these glasses that not only gave them protection for their eyes, but also allowed them to distinguish between blood and tissue, which, which is important, because they could have just put on like a welder's mask and been protected, but I'm not sure you want your surgeon operating with a welder's mask on. And so he created these glasses that would protect their eyes from the lasers, but also allow them to still distinguish between blood and tissue. And doctors love them. They loved them so much that the glasses started disappearing from the operating rooms because they would just wear them for driving and going to the beach and on vacation. Well, Dr. McPherson happened to have a pair on one day when he was playing ultimate frisbee with some of his friends down at the park. And one of his friends liked the looks of them. And he said, hey, can I try those on? And so he put the glasses on and he just stopped, just stunned. And he looked at Dr. McPherson, his friend, and he goes, I can see the cones. And he's referring to the orange cones at the four corners of the ultimate Frisbee field that they're playing on. He says, what do you mean? He says, you don't understand. I've been colorblind my entire life. 
And I put these glasses on, and for the first time, I can distinguish between the cones and the grass and the cement. For the first time, I can see the world in a whole new way. And in that one moment upon that that ultimate Frisbee field, an organization, a company called Enchroma Labs was born. And they're now creating these glasses that help people who are colorblind see in color for the first time. And over 300 million people around the world have an opportunity for a completely new perspective upon the world. One of the customers, a guy named Mark Drucker, said this. He says, just trying on the glasses was transformative. It, it's, it, it's so strange to see things differently for the first time in 45 years. And today, as we consider the power of perspective in prayer, I, I hope some of you will maybe see prayer differently for the first time in your lifetime, whether it be 45 years, more or less. Because through this message, I'm hoping today that you'll have a new vision for the purpose of prayer. And that that will encourage some of you to start praying. I'm hoping that some of you will have a new point of view on how you approach prayer. And that that will help you to build a stronger connection between you and God. And that you may even, through this new perspective on prayer, have the ability to view differently how God answers and responds to our prayers. See, here's what I want you to understand today. And and, and I I want you to really grasp this concept is that it all begins with grasping the idea that prayer is an act of seeing reality from God's perspective. Prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's perspective. Can you say that with me? Prayer is an act of what? Of seeing reality from God's perspective. That's what prayer is. And in life we catch glimpses of this. You've all had a glimpse of this at some point in your life, I'm sure. We've all had these moments, and they don't always last, but they have a power to change our perspective of how we view ourselves and how we view God. If you were following our prayer primers, uh, on day number two, Thena talked about the splendor of God. And she gave examples at the start of that about how these, these different moments of experiencing the splendor of God change our perspectives of ourselves and God. One example that came up is a, like, a, like a snow-capped mountain that you're going to climb. And you start at the base of the mountain and you start the day thinking it is, it is man against nature. I'm going to conquer this mountain, and you climb all day, and your legs are burning, and your stomach is hungry, and you are exhausted, but you finally cross that tree line, and you think, I have made it. Under my own power, I have conquered this mountain. And then you turn and look at the horizon and look down. And just the beauty, the majesty, the scale of creation that you see in the scenery, it makes you instantly feel so small. Other people sometimes have this experience when they go to like cathedrals. Uh, maybe as you're approaching a cathedral, as you approach it along the street and you see it continues to grow higher and higher in the sky because these are quite often built to be the tallest building in the town when they are first erected. And as you get closer, the architecture starts to become apparent. And the beauty of the stained glass and the rich adornment of this building. And you don't have to go to Europe to see some of these things. Even right here in Canada, in Quebec City, the the Notre Dame Basilica is a breathtaking building when you go inside with, with dual towers that shoot up into the sky, vibrant interiors, and a 7,000 pipe organ. 7,000 pipes. 
Now, some people, when they see these things, it, 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 they understand that this is a reflection of God's worthiness, of how he is worthy of all glory and honor, and it moves them. It's not everybody gets there, but some people feel this one. It moves them in the sense of awe and reverence. And even if you're not a fan of organ music like me, I, I want to hear that 7,000-pipe organ just reverberate throughout the room. It would be amazing. Many people will stop and look up at a starry night sky. I don't mean like when you're in the city and you look up and you can see some constellations and Elon Musk satellites going by. I mean when you get out of the city and you look up in amazement and just full of wonder of what you see. Anyone else fascinated and awe with the concept of space? Anyone else? Space just blow your mind. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, as you remember back in grade three, we were taught that we exist in the Milky Way galaxy. And if you take the Milky Way galaxy and shrink it down to the size of North America, which is a massive piece of land, shrink the galaxy down to the size of North America, our solar system within that would be a coffee cup. And in 1977, NASA launched Voyager 1 and 2, which has been traveling since 1977 at 100,000 miles an hour. And in 2018, it reached the edge of that coffee cup. 40 years, traveling 9 billion miles to, to reach the edge of the coffee cup. And our coffee cup is one out of several hundreds of billions of coffee cups that exist. When we think of these things, doesn't it change our perspective of how we see ourselves and the world around us? Doesn't it have this aspect of just, just kind of putting us in our place, if you will, in, in the world and the events around us? I think that's kind of what happened when, in the psalmist, in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, when he says, When I look at the heavens, when I look at the works of your hands, Lord, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I'm guessing you can relate to these words and these feelings of David that, that we could summarize as being, it just makes you feel insignificant. But that's not the purpose of this psalm. He's actually asking a rhetorical question here, a question that is intended to shift your perspective from an egocentric view of yourself, an egocentric view of reality where we reside in the middle of the universe. The question is meant to take us from there to a God-centric view of reality. Where he resides as creator and sustainer of all that is. That's the shift that's intended in these passages and in these moments, these perspectives that we have. But isn't, it's hard. It's hard to have that shift to take place and even to, even to allow it to sustain time in our lives. Because for some people, they may think, well, if that's the case, if, if that's where God is and this is where I am, does, does that mean that I don't matter anymore? Does it mean that, that God doesn't care about me? Is God too busy with all that going on? So why, why would I pray? I want you to know this. That, that that's not the whole story. <laughs> because the same God who created the mountains, who created the oceans, the same God who created the galaxies, looked at all that he had made, and he decided the world needed you too. And you, and you, and you, and you, you, and even you online, are fearfully and wonderfully made, intentionally, specifically, and beautifully. You see, these experiences and these thoughts are, are helpful 
in helping us to grasp how we are to approach God in prayer. They help us to see that our prayers are an act of viewing reality from God's perspective, not not from our own. But maybe you're like me. And as I reflect back upon my prayer life and, and I consider how I pray at times, I, I have to admit, and maybe you'll admit right along with me, that I'm guilty of praying in the wrong direction quite often. I, I pray in the wrong direction. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, some of you may have seen this play called Our Town by, by, by Thornton Wilder. And in it, there's a character named Jane who, who lives on a farm, and she receives this letter addressed to her on her farm. And, and on the letter, it says uh, it's to her farm, her town, in her state. And then as she looks on the envelope, the address continues, and it says, the United States of America, the continent of North America, the Western Hemisphere, the Earth, the solar system, the universe, the mind of God, is how it was addressed. I'm guessing you've never addressed a letter like that before. But, But quite often, isn't that the path that our prayers travel? Don't they quite often start with with our concerns and who we are, and then we bring that to God as as though we're informing him of something. Like we're we're updating him on the latest news in our lives. Uh, Often when I know when I pray and I'm asking for something, I feel like I'm pleading, and somehow my pleading is going to like override or change God's will. And I don't think I'm alone on this because research has been done into this fact, and it's found that that's quite often how our prayers go. Many people pray, like over 90% of people in the world, religious or otherwise, pray. But when we even ask people of faith, what, what do you pray for? 82% of people said, I, I pray for my friends and my family. 74% said, I pray for my problems. 54% say, I pray for my prosperity. Also on the list, 7% pray for parking spots, which is probably, probably higher than 7%. Especially at Costco on a busy weekend. 7% of people also prayed that they didn't get the speeding ticket that they think they just might be on their way to getting. And 13% of people pray for their sports team. That was the Oilers' problem. Not enough prayer. Only 13, maybe it even hit 13%. Right? Whoever gets the most prayer wins. Isn't that how sports works? Both teams have people praying for them. How is God to decide? Well, God doesn't care about your sports team. That's how he decides. <laughs> 13% pray for your sports teams. But what if we were to switch our perspective and when we approach God in prayer, we begin with him? What if we start upstream? What if we start at the top of the mountain, we start with the mind and the will of God, where, where we, we view our concerns and our needs, but from that point of view, and then let God's will flow downhill to us? What if we started there? I think if we did, we would realize that God already knows. And God already cares about what we're going to pray for. God already knows about your broken relationship. He already knows that you're lacking peace in your life. He already knows the fears that exist around COVID and and vaccines and, and, and the reopening and all these sorts of things. He already knows the fear you have and the struggles you have with your finances. He knows that your heart is crushed because of a rebellious teen. He already knows that you're struggling with depression. But what if we were to start up the mountain at the top of there and, and knowing that God already knows those things, God already cares about those things? Here's what I think we would find. I would think we would find that somehow he already knows and he already cares more than we do. 
And because he cares more than we do, he sends his mercy downhill for our pain. He sends his relief for our grief, his strength for our weariness, his grace for our sin. And as that flows down from the mountain of God, we receive it. And our response is to worship. Our response is to praise. Our response is to say, Lord, what part do I play in your work? Lord, how do I fit in that? Lord, how do you want to work in me? How are you moving around me? What do you want of me? How can I live and join you in what you are doing? Do you see the difference in perspective? It doesn't mean we don't pray for the things that we have in our hearts. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we necessarily pray differently. We, we don't pray for different things. But we start with a different perspective about those things. Now, there are awesome moments in life when we can choose to do that. These mountaintop moments, these, these reverent moments of awe in religious services. Looking at the universe and just being moved to incomprehension of it all. There's times like that, these awesome moments in life where we can choose to make our prayers an act of seeing reality from God's perspective. But there are other times in life when these events are just thrust upon us. And they can be staggering and, 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 and leave you with your, kind of your head spinning a bit because they leave you with no choice. A few years ago, I received a phone call from, from junior high that my son Sam was going to. And I was told that he had an accident in gym class and that he wasn't feeling well. And they said, it's almost the end of the day. Is it okay if we just send him home on the bus? And the school needs parents' permission to release a child, and, and so they called me, and I said, well, yeah, sure, sounds fine. It's almost the end of the day. Can I talk to him, though? And so I talked to Sam, and, and I could tell he was hurt. I could tell he wasn't feeling well, and I said, yeah, no, absolutely. You, you can go home, Sam. We'll see you when I get home. But then before I hung up the phone, I said, you know, something just doesn't sound right. And I said, Sam, do you want me to come get you? Like, instead of taking the bus home, do you want me to come pick you up? And he said, yeah, I think you do. So I left work, and I went, and I picked him up from school. And when I got to school, I found that he was in the office in, in this little medical room they have, and he was laying on a cot, just laying down. And the principal walked into the room. Near the end of the day, it was, Bell was about to go to let all these hundreds of students into the, into the common areas. And the principal walked in, says, you guys ready to go? He said, yeah. He walked in, and I thought he was going to help Sam up, but the principal, he picked up Sam in his arms. And he started walking with Sam through the hallways with hundreds of kids. Now, that's pretty embarrassing, right? Being carried by your principal through the school hallways as you go out. And I'm thinking, what is, what is going on here? And we get to the truck, and, and he puts Sam in the truck. And I find out that his injury was head-related that he had hit his head, and that he was very, very dizzy, he was nauseous, and he had lost consciousness for a period of time. And that's why he was laying down and needed to go home. And I thought, well, that can be pretty serious. And so I sat in my truck with him. I thought, well, what do we do now? Do we just go home? And I was trying to figure out what my next stop was. He lost consciousness again. So we went to the hospital. As we get to the emergency room, he couldn't walk anymore, so I had to carry him kind of almost like the principal did, carry him into the emergency room until I found a wheelchair to sit him in. But he couldn't even sit in the wheelchair. He just kept sliding out of it as people in the waiting room figured I had just brought my, my son in who was high on something because he couldn't sit up. And, and, and I get up to the triage desk, 
And, and as, he's, as he's in and out of consciousness, I'm, I'm like, is it okay? Like, is it okay if he, if he sleeps? And, and as I'm trying to ask this question to help, uh, the, the clerk gives me the finger. Like, hey, just wait. So I had some thoughts what he could do with that finger. But I was a pastor, so I didn't share those in the moment. <laughs> but I took a breath. And then the clerk says, what seems to be the problem? I said, well, it seems that my son, and before I could even finish it, Sam passed out and slumped out of the chair onto the floor. Well, at that moment, the team of doctors and nurses rushed in, surrounded him, and whisked him away. And left me just standing there, just staring through a window as this team of people descended around this bed to work on my son. I have never felt so helpless, alone. I have never just instantly ceased to exist in a room ever in my life before. And it was really hard because that's my son. I'm supposed to help him. I'm supposed to be the one who protects him. And in this moment, I am absolutely powerless to do anything. But I could do one thing. I, I, I could pray. And it was hard to find words to pray in the moment as this moment descended upon me as I stood there in that room just full of fear and, and fighting back the tears of, of not knowing what was going to go on. And the only words I look back, the only words that fit the moment are the words of Psalm 46.10 because it reveals my only option. In Psalm 46.10, which simply says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See, Psalm 46 was written from the perspective where, where the psalmist felt like everything around him was falling apart. Like the creation around him was being uncreated. It's a psalm that refers to maybe a time that you've had in your life when, when it seems like the world is either coming against you or it is falling apart all around you. And what is the natural response when that happens? If you're anything wired like me, your natural response is to rally the efforts, rally the troops, regain control, pray, but pray, Lord, help me to overcome. Lord, help me to find a way. Lord, help me to have the strength to defeat my enemies that are coming against me. Because I like to believe that I can handle pretty much anything uh, under one condition. There's not many stories or situations or, 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 or things that people have ever shared with me or experiences I've ever had in my life that have thrown me off that much for that long under one condition. I can discern a solution. And I feel like I have a plan that I can execute. It's also called Control. I need to feel like I have a form of control. I'm good in most situations, if not practically every situation, as long as I feel like I've got one hand on the steering wheel. Can you relate to that at all? Because quite often that's what people are struggling to achieve in life. That many of us live in this state of constantly trying, of this constant effort to get life under control. Have you ever felt that? I just got to get life under control. My to-do list keeps growing. It's getting bigger, not smaller. The kids are in school this week, but I'm not sure about next week, and that just throws everything off. We've got to do the shopping and the meal planning. By the way, the toilet's clogged. The finances aren't working out. I have a sick parent we need to care for. And in the midst of all of that that I need to do on a daily basis, I'm supposed to look after myself, eat right, and exercise, and get enough rest. This constant effort to get on control of things. And what's the solution that people often come up with? 
Quite often what they'll say is, well, I'll just take a vacation day. I'll take a day off. I'll take a vacation day, and then I will get caught up. And you know what? Psalm 46 actually isn't too far from that. Psalm 46, God's actually saying, that's what he's saying in this verse, God's solution is actually to take a vacation. That's not far from what he's saying, because that word be still, that word be still comes from the word that means to vacate. It's where we get the word vacation from. Be still means to vacation. It means to vacate. It can also be translated as relax. Let go. Enough. God's saying stop striving. Just be still. Now, we're often not good at stillness. You know, modern life in which we live conspires against stillness. See, busyness has become the measure by which many people determine their significance, their value. It, it forms our identity of importance and control by how busy we are. And if we slow down, there's this fear we're going to miss out on something. If we slow down, how does that affect my identity? How will people view me and see me if I slow down? What will it do to my security if I'm not constantly trying to strive? See, there's a fear that's attached to stillness. But stillness is critical because stillness is the prerequisite that prepares us for the second part of the command, and that is to know. To know what? To know, in the words of God, that I am God. To acknowledge his presence and his power in the midst of every situation. To be still and to know, to acknowledge that you can trust him in all situations. See, Psalm 46.10 is basically God inviting us to take a vacation. To take a vacation from being God for a little while and to let him be God. Hopefully for more than a little while. But this is... Sometimes people hear this and they think, well, it's a call to inactivity. When I'm on vacation, I just kind of kick back, put my feet up, and I get that picture of my feet in the sand in the ocean, and psh, just nothing, relax. But that's not what it's about, because it's not about a call to inactivity. It's not a call to sit quietly and just wait for troubles to pass. It's a call to activity, but it's an activity of trusting It's a step of activity that trusts in God to the point where we can still worship him in the midst of the storm, where we can still obey him when he leads us in the midst of the strife. It's a call to activity to pray, to pray in a way where we can acknowledge openly and honestly and admit to God that we have limitations, to admit that we are weak in situations, that we have failings and shortcomings in our lives. And to pray in a way, an active prayer, in a way where we acknowledge that we need God's point of view and we need his power to help us. Sam's injury was very serious. His life and our family's lives were seriously altered that day. And for the better part of a decade, we are still navigating the implications of that injury. And possibly for the rest of his life, he will. It was very serious. But I believe it in that moment that God was saying to me, and these are my own words, as I stood there and powerless and, and with no control, and in my own words, if I could share with you what I felt God was saying to me, he was saying, Mark, don't be afraid. You may not be able, but I am. I got this, and I got him. Keep in mind how I've cared for you in the past. Remember how his life started as a miracle. 
and that's one that's not finished yet. Keep loving him, keep supporting him, keep watching over him. That's your job as his father, but also your job is to keep trusting in me, your heavenly father. Why? Because I got this. Maybe in the past or right now you're going through a situation where you can relate to that. And I know people have even more serious stories and instances than the one I've just relayed. Maybe there's a situation work-wise, family-wise, health-wise, where you're facing a choice right now. You may not have thought of it in this way before, but you're facing a choice. And the choice is either to, to, to look to your own power and say, I am able. And if that's the perspective you hold, your prayers are, are, are going to strive in accordance to that. Your prayers are going to seek God, help me gain control in my own power, in my own way. And I can tell you this, it's going to feel like you're punching the wind, which will just tire you out and be frustrating. But here's the other option. The other option is to say, God, I believe that you are able, and to set your eyes up the mountain in prayer as an act of faith. Be still and know that he is God, not us, and allow his mercy, his grace, and his love to flow down, and then we will move at his command. Because prayer is about seeing reality from his perspective, not from ours. And this is what Philippians 4. I just want to unpack this for us before we're done today. That's what Philippians 4 is about. One of the most popular verses on prayer in the Bible. And to be completely honest with you, a passage that I have struggled with at times in my life. Why have I struggled with this? Because Philippians 4 calls us to celebrate in the good times and the bad. No matter what the situation is, it says rejoice. I get the good times. I think we can all understand the good times when, when the bills are paid and the kids are behaving and the deal goes through and the sun is shining. Oh, rejoice. Absolutely. We understand that one. But, but it says all times, which means that would include the hard times. So how do we celebrate in the hard times? This week alone, I, I've talked to three families who have lost a loved one. I've talked to people who are just overwhelmed with the number of things happening and coming at them in their life during this particular season. I've talked to people who are, who are struggling with physical pain that medication will not take care of. People who are struggling with depression that, that seems to have no end to it. And this verse says rejoice. It says verse 4 and 5, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be given to all because the Lord is near. I struggle with this verse initially because because it doesn't feel like reality to me. Doesn't that make you feel at times perhaps like it's saying, hey, just ignore reality. Just, just avoid focusing upon that and look over here instead. Or, or worse yet, and, I, and I, it's one of my challenges when I, when I look at things, does it present a sanitized version of life for the Christian faith? Trust Jesus and nothing bad will ever happen. We're just going to sanitize all that, which which is not the promise of God or the Bible. See, we're facing temptations and trials and struggles and conflict. It tells us to be joy, but how? How do we have joy? Well, the passage continues, and, and the answer is found as we continue in the passage. You see, when you have those feelings of worry, of fear, the passage continues in verse 6, and it says, take those and allow them to shape your prayers. It says, don't be, don't be anxious about anything, but instead, when you feel that worry, when you feel that anxiety, take that. Instead of focusing upon that, turn that, shape it into a prayer. And in every situation, 
good or bad, shape it into a prayer. And by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving that we can come before our Heavenly Father in heaven, present that request to God in prayer. This is where the perspective, if it's limited upon our events, our will, our power, this will not make sense. But if we shift our perspective, it does all of a sudden. Doesn't it? If we shift our perspective, all of a sudden we see that, that we can turn it into a prayer and we can, we can direct it towards him. We can set our eyes upstream. We can set our eyes at the top of the mountain. In the midst of the problem, in the midst of the challenge, we can seek first the mind and the will of God. And when we gain his perspective, before we know it, flowing down the mountain starts to come these experiences of comfort. Flowing down the mountain comes counsel. Flowing down the mountain comes correction that we need in the midst of those difficulties. And when we find that good provision that is specifically for us in that moment, we can be thankful that God has provided in a way that nobody else and nothing else and certainly ourselves could never do. That while the struggle may remain in our lives for a time, the worry we feel around it is instead replaced with something else. What is it replaced with? Verse 7 tells us. It is replaced instead with the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because it's not of us. It doesn't make sense to the world because the world is focused upon this egocentric view of, of, of how things should work and how they operate. And, and our prayers pray according to that at times. It doesn't make sense according to that perspective. But if we shift the perspective to put our eyes up the mountain, it suddenly makes sense. Because the peace of God, which transcends that other perspective, will instead guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. If you're currently facing a challenge, a decision, if you're wrestling with, with an addiction or with a temptation, here's what I can tell you. If your vision is cast low, if your vision is cast upon yourself, there's a high likelihood that you will experience worry and frustration and potentially defeat. And you will certainly not want to rejoice. But Psalm 121 tells us, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Another rhetorical question, which is half reassuring, half reminding himself of where his help comes from. His help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth, the one who shades him with his right hand, the one who will not let his foot slip, the one who watches over you. When we have the perspective of looking up the mountain, first looking to the mind and the will of God, we find the promise. And the promise is this, that we can rejoice in the Lord always. In every situation, if we will turn that into a request to God, then we will experience the peace of God flowing down, and that peace will guard our hearts, and it will guard our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? See, prayer is an act of seeing reality from God's perspective. Now, if you're like me, a person who prays, but also likes to have control, you need to understand this. You have a role to play. In God's will, but, but he is the author of that will. And so I challenge you with this today as we close. Is there an area in your life, if you're a person who prays, but you also struggle with this control aspect of prayer, this, this perspective shift needs to happen in your life. Is there an area in your life where you need to take a vacation and let God be God and let he be the one who directs your steps and your ways? Maybe you're a person who, who prays, but it's a little shaky if you're honest. You only pray sometimes, and quite often the things that you pray for reflect the kind of the stats I shared earlier, and they're focused upon, you know, ourselves and our family and our prosperity, and, and from a perspective of, 
of the me. If you can admit that you have more of a selfish perspective, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up. I'm just going to, within your own mind and heart, if you can acknowledge that. I want to invite you again to join us for these prayer primers. I walked you through a model of it earlier in the service day. Did you notice something? What do we start with? Praise. We start with praise. Why? Because we want to set our minds and our eyes up the mountain. That's why we start with praise. It's not to butter God up for what comes next. It's for ourselves. It's to set our mind and our eyes up the mountain and allow the prayer to flow down from there. I invite you again to join us in these prayer primers. You don't have to go back to day one. Jump in today at day seven. Jump in tomorrow at day eight. Join us in these 30 days of prayer and help us to help you lift your eyes to God. Help us or or let us help you, equip you in these prayer primers that are about two to four minutes long. But they'll give you a thought to start with as you praise God. They'll give you a model to follow as you grow in your understanding of prayer. And you'll still have time to ask for things. It's still there. Step three. But you'll be amazed at how that changes after you praise, repent, and then come to ask. You'll be amazed. I know there's also people who don't pray because they haven't got a relationship with God. Let me rephrase that. 90% of people pray, relationship or not, but they don't have a relationship with God, so they're not really sure of how effective or the purpose of their prayers. And and if that's where you find yourself, I'm going to guess that when you pray, it's very infrequent, and it tends to be during times when you're feeling very low, when stress is high, when, when you need help with something. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 11, he says, come to me. He invites us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's another way of saying, be still and know that I am God. Come to me if you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, Jesus invites us into a relationship with him. He invites us to have a relationship with him so we can lift our eyes above the burden, above that to where he is, and then walk with him in the midst of it. And we do that. It's possible to have that done because Jesus is the one who dealt with the sin that separates us from our Heavenly Father. And when we can accept the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus gives to us, we can come into relationship with him and be identified with Jesus in his victory, not ourselves and our shortcomings, but with Jesus in his victory. And we can then come before our Heavenly Father free of the sin, free of that which separates in an eternal relationship with Jesus that begins here and now as we walk with him, accepting his invitation to come if we're weary and burdened, and he gives us rest. And it's from that posture and from that perspective that we can pray. And I invite you now to pray with me. Heavenly Father, for those who are gathered with us right now that don't have a relationship with you, and these words that we've been sharing today, just something inside them says this is what's missing in your life. I pray that those people right now would just acknowledge themselves online or, or if they're here with me in this room or online, that they would just pray along with me and say, thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sins that separate me from God. Thank you for doing what I could not. Jesus, instead of being identified with my sin, I ask your forgiveness that I could be identified in your victory. Jesus, as you gave your life for me, I now give you mine. I accept your invitation to walk with you and for you to guide me in the days of my life. And Lord, for those who are gathered here as well who have that relationship with you but still struggle with with control, 
struggle with peace, struggle with being still. God, I pray that you would give them your confidence and your assurance in the midst of that, that they could be still. But not for the sake of inactivity, Lord, but for the stillness that we can then know that you are God and that we can pray and walk in confidence that you are with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name.